Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California today. And as always, I'm joined by uh, Bob Bazanko in Ohio. Uh, and today, we're going to be joined by uh, Oliver Franklin Wallace, who is an award-winning magazine journalist whose writing has appeared in Wired, British GQ, The Guardian, The New York Times, The Times Magazine, The Sunday Times. Uh, but we're going to be talking about uh, Oliver's new book, which is called Wasteland, The Dirty Truth About What We Throw Away, Where It Goes, and Why It Matters. Bob's given us a visual aid right there. Uh, but Oliver, welcome to the Green and Red Podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, and just, you know, before we get started, just throw out a couple of a couple of quick facts. Quick facts, just like about the size of the waste crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, yeah, yeah. some tantalizing trash talk. Some, yeah, uh, trash talk, yeah. Trash talk. Uh, yeah, okay. So, so I mean, the average American throws away 4.4 pounds of garbage every day. Uh, which is a slightly staggering figure. I think worldwide we throw away about 2.1 billion tons every year, which is due to rise to 3.3 by 2050. So there's that. My favorite fact, I think, my my, my favorite fact in the whole book is that uh, we throw away about a third of all food grown in the world. About, about a third of all food grown worldwide is is wasted and never eaten. But if you think about the the farmland that is therefore being used to grow food pointlessly. Uh, it would cover the subcontinent of India. That is how much farmland glo- globally is being wasted right now that we could be using for, you know, growing forests or building homes or doing all sorts of other things. So um, I think when we talk about waste, we can you can kind of talk about the, the dual meanings, right? There's there's the trash that we throw away, which is what this book is about, but it's also about uh, a loss of opportunity. And I hope that this kind of book can frame the issue as both things, if that makes sense. The waste product that seems to be in the news more and more, particularly if you're an environmentalist paying attention, is plastic waste, which Mm -hmm. I actually uh, was reading uh, that plastic waste has more than doubled globally since 2000. And, you know, that's just 23 years versus like the whatever the decades before that where we had plastic. And so how do you you know, how does how does plastic waste in particular fit into the sort of overall trash waste waste crisis? Well, plastic is 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 kind of where this all started for me. Um, when I started doing this 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 book, I, I wrote a story for the Guardian back in 2019 um, about China, which had been like the premier destination for most of the world's garbage and uh, and trash for for the previous 20 years or so. 2018, they basically got sick of having these kind of environmental toxins and this this garbage kind of flooding their economy, and they said, "Nope, you know, we don't need it anymore. We're gonna we're gonna shut our doors." And the result was um, particularly plastic waste flooding through particularly Southeast Asia. So countries like uh, Malaysia and Vietnam, Thailand, things like that. And you, there were kept being these stories about these kind of huge field, like literal, literal fields full of like waste plastics. And most, a lot of them were coming from the UK and Europe and the US. So, you know, this was, was this wasn't Malaysian uh, garbage most of the time. It was, it was imported. And the stuff that couldn't be recycled was basically being burned in open fields. And uh, the thing that kind of blew my mind was, OK, well, you know, if this stuff that we think is being recycled isn't being recycled, then why and, and what's happened to it? And around the same time, we started seeing about 2017 or so, 
when the, the, there was a documentary that came out in the UK called Blue Planet 2, uh, which um, was like this David Attenborough documentary. And it had a lot of footage, a whole episode about ocean plastic, basically. And you might have remember seeing all the footage of like sea turtles with their heads caught in six pack rings and stuff. And the gyres, the gyres. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, exactly. The, the great, uh, the great Pacific garbage patch and all, all of these kind of things. And it just kind of was like, okay, well, how did we get here? Do you know what I mean? Like, how could it have got this bad? And I think the answer largely is because waste is this something that we kind of, it's it's a fairly disgusting subject. We don't really want to deal with it. So it's like out of sight, out of mind. You know, we, we kind of don't pay attention to it. And so for the, for the Western world, for the global North, people listening here, waste is like this magical thing, right? Like you put it in the bin and you shut the lid or you put it in the trash can and shut the lid and take pull it to the curb and then it just magically disappears. It goes away, you know, there's this a kind of euphemism away. And it's like, when when we started seeing that stuff happening in China and on the other side of the world, it was like, oh, okay, away is a place and it's a people. And it's, you know, like we were starting to realize that the consequences of these things, they don't magically disappear into the ether and like recycling isn't this just mythical process that happens. There are people behind it. And so that's kind of what started me on this journey, like wanting to meet those people and see what was actually happening at the other end. I'm going to kind of go back to step one. So I brought some props, uh, an aluminum can, a oh, yeah. plastic bottle, and a, a glass olive oil bottle. Awesome. So, um, you know, I don't consider this trash, right? When I'm done, yeah. I'm a good citizen. I want to save the world. So I throw it in a recycling bin. Mm -hmm. what, hap what happens to it then? I think I've done my part, right? I'm saving Yeah, and you have to. Yeah, I, I think it's important to say you have done your part. And, and something that I kind of say to people a lot now, going around and talking about the book, and they say, oh, you know, recycling's a... a of nonsense and we, we should all not bother i'm like no no no, that's that's not true recycling is as uh, in, in aggregate has real environmental benefits so for example there's there's a there's a figure that if you recycle an aluminum can that's 95 percent lower carbon emissions i recycle an aluminum can the the, the, the carbon footprint is 95 percent smaller than a new one and i think it takes like eight tons of bauxite to mine to, to to make a ton of aluminium like the the extraction and the impact on the environment that's saved by recycling something like aluminum uh glass similar copper you know there are all of these uh materials out there that are very circular that get recycled a lot and and that we have a pretty robust you know the metals recycling industry which is intimately tied with the the mining industry and things like that is this gigantic multi-billion dollar behemoth and you've never heard of any of the companies but it all kind of goes on behind the scenes quite happily the thing that's kind of wild is plastics because partly because we we've kind of been taught and conditioned ourselves that plastics is this plastics are these one thing you know it's like when the reality is there are a bunch of different types of materials with similar ingredients but often like wildly different chemical properties and behaviors and things and once they're kind of formed it's very difficult to turn them into other kinds. So, you know, like you, it's very difficult, for example, you take, you had, you held up like a bottle just there. If I had to guess, like you could probably read it out. It's like, it's probably PET, which is what soda bottles are made from, or it's like HD, high density polyethylene, which is what milk cartons are made from. Like, well, probably, it's probably going to be made one of the, one of those two things. Um, and if you look at plastics, there's this thing called the international resin code. So if you look at most stuff in the, in the global north, it will have a little triangle of arrows on it. And quite often there's a number in the middle of those two arrows. And that, that number means something. Uh, to, well, it means something to waste people. It tells them what that plastic would be. And numbers one and two, very commonly recycled. Three and four, less so. By the time you get to number seven, which is basically 
other like it includes a wild variety of totally dissimilar things that stuff is basically unrecyclable or certainly it's not recyclable in a way that's like economic uh, economically feasible and so or very efficient so it just doesn't happen but we're kind of taught that all plastics are recycled right like we're, we you, we're, we're kind of trained that all of these things are one and so that's been kind of interesting and one of the things that you, as you said like you said you don't see them as as, as waste when you talk to people who work in the trade, and particularly if you talk to like waste pickers who are people in the global south who make their living, you know, picking up recyclers. If you live in New York State, like way back when you remember canners and stuff, you people are people, you know, taking the taking the cans back to the deposit box for to earn some money. You know, those people really know the value of all this stuff and they can tell you the difference just by sight and feel. And, you know, I think we should be having a conversation about how we get everybody to that state because once you see the value in that can and once you understand what's gone into making it and what can be saved by recycling it it becomes something where you want you know you want to make sure it's recycled properly and you don't want to just make sure it disappears um but yeah there's a lot of uh, misdirection and uh, a lot of greenwashing that goes on this world in this world and this book i hope can kind of draw back the uh, curtain on some of that behavior so if if plastics or packing peanuts or styrofoam isn't mm -hmm recyclable then what what happens they just get burnt or well yeah mo a lot of the time these days that you know in the old days they would have been thrown in a landfill in the in the u.s much of the u.s is a, is a very landfill happy country if it's in the uk it's almost certainly burned in what what these days are called waste to energy plants they used to be called incinerators but these days they, they draw power off them and globally like burning burning waste 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 to energy plants are probably is probably the fastest growing disposal um method worldwide and the challenge is when you when you're burning waste and and there are some things which make sense to burn you know like if you have medical waste you know you're not you can't recycle a body bag because it's contaminated so there's a bunch of stuff which we kind of have always burned and, and makes a lot of sense to the challenge is is that these waste to energy plants these incinerators they want stuff that burns well and so they want plastic because it's made of fuel and they want paper and card and wood, all of which are kind of very recyclable, inherently recyclable things, right? So they're they're often in direct competition with recycling things. Now, if you recycle something, you are keeping that material in the in the in the cycle. You are lowering the carbon footprint of the of the product that it's you know made remade into. If you're burning it, then you're kind of getting a little bit of energy out, but that's probably lost in the manufacturer of whatever aluminum can is is kind of having to come down the pipe to replace it. So I I can see. I see the advantages of waste to energy plants and I can see it's a, it's a kind of nuanced discussion, but it seems kind of crazy to me that we're talking about burning being the fastest growing source of like waste disposable in, in a world that's like quite literally on fire right now in a lot of places. But uh, maybe that's just me. I would, I would also think the burning would have a, a pretty bad impact on whoever lives around it, which are usually not people in Beverly well, Hills. Yeah. And you know, the, the environmental justice impacts are pretty sizable. They are huge and they have been, you know, incineration has this long history. It goes back to the 19th century in England. Uh, I think it was Manchester, the city of Manchester that built the first municipal uh, incinerator. And, and, you know, back in those days, there was no scrubbing chemicals out. You know, these were these filthy smokestacks kind of spewing out into the sky. And um, back in the, the middle of the 20th century, you know, Los Angeles and places like that, that had a lot of these backyards. Um, incinerators trash people would, people would burn their trash in their backyard and, and you had a, a horrendous smog problems and so there's like a long like a, a huge burden of evidence that burning trash and all the chemicals you know trash is everything around us you know this is the thing that i kind of get across to people when you talk about trash 
somebody has to dispose of everything eventually the house around you everything you own eventually is going to be torn apart and there's so much toxicity in the things that we build and we make and we use uh that when you burn it that toxicity is quite often it ends up going somewhere now a lot of these modern facilities in the west you know the one that i visit in the book which is in the west of england um i followed uh if you live in some of the posh parts of of west london your uh your, your garbage is actually loaded onto these night trains and kind of carted across the country while you're sleeping and burned in this gigantic waste to energy plant um on the seven in bristol which is near wales for anyone who knows the geography of england um and you know this is an incredibly modern facility they've used all sorts of high-tech scrubbing techniques to make sure that you know as many of the noxious gases are taken out and you know and, and the fly ash which is the stuff that's left behind the fly ash and the bottom ash which is quite often like concentrated heavy metals and concentrated toxins because you know of everything you think about everything you burn has to be safely disposed of in essentially like a toxic waste disposal landfill and sealed off from from the world sometimes some of that stuff it can be recycled safely into aggregates and things but a lot of it's got to be sealed away now that's all very well if you live in like a super rich country and you have like high levels of uh, regulation and checks to make sure that's going on but if you're talking about these these incinerators that are being built in the global south that's often not the case and you know the other incinerator that features in the book is one on the edge of a gigantic landfill in india that's basically falling apart and not operating properly and a bunch of the safety stuff had basically been stripped out and sold and so we've got to kind of remember that we're, we're talking about the majority of the, the the waste explosion that's going on a lot of that is happening in the global south and so if we're talking about waste like burning waste as a serious solution it's like well are we sure that the environmental controls are going to be practiced equally everywhere and i'm not so sure i hope that i hope so but it's a real concern and something that should be talked about at a high level when you see organizations like the world bank funding these things in the global south for sure there are um real kind of class and, and racial kind of um ideas tied into mm. this too right where poor neighborhoods non-white neighborhoods tend to get dumps i know i live in houston and uh there's a high school there that's built on a dump caesar chavez mm. high school i don't even know if they use it anymore mm. So you have that, and then you know you have you know, plumbing got started in the U.S. privately. You know, rich people were able to afford plumbing. Everybody else threw their stuff out the window, and you know, and, and obviously the the less developed world is you know receiving this stuff, and people are working in it with with all kinds of toxins. I mean, what what you know, both in the U.S. and globally, what's the kind of class angle to this? How does it affect you know, kind of who who gets affected the most by it? It's huge, and it's such a good point because you know I think I say in, the, in this in the book, but you know waste all through our history has kind of been dumped on the margins and on the marginalised, and uh, the, the 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 place that ends up dumped the, the the place we end up turning into landfills and dumps and building new things are wherever the land value is the lowest, and so that's inevitably where the poorest people in the world are. Um, you look at places like Cancer Alley in the US. You look in this, you know, even historically, you go back to the. The Victorian era, and in here in London, you would see, you know, the barges basically carted all the garbage from the city downstream, and they just dumped it on the shores of Essex because, you know, and now the, 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 where all the poor people lived essentially. And we're still seeing the environmental um, kind of uh, blowback from that decades and centuries later. But it's a huge, it, there's a huge inequality at the heart of this. And many of the characters that I meet in the book, whether that's in India or Southeast Asia or, or Ghana and in West Africa, you know, these are some of the poorest people you'll ever meet and that, you know, that, that make their living off, off waste. Um, there's this concept we call that's quite often called waste colonialism, which is the idea of 
rich people inflicting their their waste upon uh, upon the poor and and upon environments that are not their own, um, and that's you know has a very long and complicated history. To give you one example from the US, uh, which is topical now because everybody's going to see Oppenheimer, uh, <laughs> which is uh, the huge um, uh, like scarring influence that the uh, uranium mining industry has had on indigenous lands in in the US. Um, and the, the the burden that it placed upon some of those communities is just one example for uh, that, that I could use. But you know, uh, there are there are plenty in the book, and I'm sure we'll get 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 into that. But yeah, the, the uh, generally generally speaking, rich people's waste ends up poor people's problems, and that has always been the case. How would how would you say? I mean, I I, I mean, I see an element of also greenwashing going on here, is like governments and, and corporations. Are basically sort of trying to cover the tracks everything's okay mm-hmm. you know and and particularly you know corporations also you know who produce a lot of waste like we could talk we could talk about the nuclear waste we could talk about the nuclear sector and there's like lots of mm-hmm. waste and they don't really want to talk about that when when they're trying to kind of re, re bring nuclear energy back i'm just wondering if you could comment a little bit on the greenwashing um I, I don't know if that's true in the US. I, I would actually say that here in the UK my experience of of nuclear waste was the opposite because I think it's one of the one of the few industries where they know how dangerous and toxic this stuff is and it's something that you know very early on in the in the nuclear age and in, in the atomic age you know waste was basically they had no idea what they were doing with it and a lot of this stuff they were just like throwing in lakes and flush throwing out in the no, dumping it in the ocean and and they very quickly learn their lesson um so like nuclear waste if anything they're just like desperate for funding you know they're desperate to to, to kind of like make sure this stuff is away and and we are we are drastically underfunding that industry and, and have historically um been far too glib in our approach with nuclear waste if you ask me but uh, yeah the greenwashing greenwashing is kind of the subplot of the entire book a lot of the time because the entire way that we think about waste and whose responsibility waste is kind of comes like not not wholly but but there's there's a large greenwashing element to it because you know you guys probably know this but and some of your listeners will probably know it there's a famous story of in the 1950s a bunch of the packaging industry got together and they formed this action group called keep america beautiful and this was a bunch of uh like the american can company and coca-cola and all those all those companies got together because there was this glut of garbage going on it basically there was a national garbage crisis um, as a result of the sudden explosion in the 1950s of post-war consumerism and these new plastics and things that were going on. And what Keep America Beautiful did, and, and it has corollaries in, in other countries, like Keep Britain Tidy is, is the one that we have over here, um, is they essentially uh, put out all this messaging which blamed the crisis on litter bugs. And there was lots of anti-littering campaigns and they put signs up in national parks and they put all these adverts out and they said, basically said, you know, like, this is your fault, you're being irresponsible. Which, you know, I'm not saying that litterers should should get away with it, but it kind of was crazy when you have these organizations that are pun- like pumping out this environmentally you know, toxic stuff, you know, plastics that, are, that, that they know are going to design to last four or five hundred years. And the best thing that they can do is like kind of put up a sign and blame it on people. And the, the, the corollary I use in the book is the um, is British Petroleum popularizing the term carbon footprint you know not a, not a lot of people know that the, the the very concept of carbon footprints was popularized by an oil company because it does a very useful thing in, in kind of framing who's to blame 
Uh, and it, you know, it's, it's the framing of the individual as the problem rather than the polluter. You know, the polluter pays principle is too scary for them. They don't want to hit their profit margins. Um, so the very like the very start of this story kind of starts starts with with greenwashing. But you know, you talk about um, we, you talk about um, polluters. When we were talking about plastic earlier, it's 480 billion plastic bottles produced worldwide every year is the estimate. A very large number of those are produced by the Coca Cola company. Now, the Coca Cola company has been pledging for literally decades to put more recycled plastic uh, into their bottles. So in the mid mid 90s, I think it was 1997, they said that they were going to put 25% recycled plastic into their bottles. And uh, they did not do that. And uh, in 2005, they made a similar pledge, and they did not do it then. They then they did it in 2007, and they didn't do it then. And then they did it in 2010, and they didn't do it then. And then they did it in 2015. And then, like, every single time, they'll make a big pledge, and then, you know, like, there'll be an economic downturn or something will happen, and people take their eye off the ball, and they never followed through. Now, for me, that's, like, a a, a huge red flag for when we're, we're talking about climate commitments and stuff at the moment. You know, if you can't do something as basic as put 25% recycled plastic into your bottles over the course of several decades and no one's holding you to account on it, it doesn't set a great precedent for climate targets, right? So greenwashing is is, is at the core of this and something that um, when when people read it, it tends to get them pretty mad and I hope that it will get a lot of people mad and we can do something about it. When we see those images of like those huge lakes of, you know, like plastic water bottles or whatever, mm -hmm. Is that because people just didn't recycle in the first place, just threw it in with their garbage, or was that because they they weren't recyclable, and so somebody else threw them in the water? Yeah, that's a good question. It, they it tends to vary wildly depending on the context of the country that you're dealing with. I mean, the big the the big kind of I, I think I said this at the beginning. We take waste collection. The idea that you would be able to put the trash can out and someone comes to collect it, we kind of take that as a given, right? right We've had that right, for decades. Right. It, that is not true for huge numbers of people in the world. I think there's about 2 billion people who have no form of waste collection whatsoever. And other places, it's mishmash. You know, there, there are entire countries that basically don't have municipal recycling schemes, and, and particularly in the global south, right? There's just not the infrastructure. So in those places where there is no municipal trash collection, these things end up in dumps in, the, in your backyard or they end up in, you know, village dump, you know, the village will have an open dump because they can't afford to have a pro proper sanitary landfill. And the inevitable thing with these things that are lightweight, like plastics, you know, you, we've all seen pictures of plastic bags caught on trees and blowing in the wind. I think they used to call them the, uh, there's, there's a, I think a South Africa called them like the white fruit or something like that, because there were so many that used to be caught in the trees there. Um, so it, it that, then it becomes a question, and it's like, well, how much responsibility lies with the countries who who with the people who haven't got ample trash collection? And by the way, a lot of the cases they just haven't had, they haven't had the public education to understand, you know, the the environmental impact of these things, how long they're going to last. You know, like you go and see people in India, for example, eating like taking things out of these tiny sachets, which big you know, uh, multinational conglomerates are pumping into the global south by, by their trillions. And people just open them and then throw them on the ground. And there's a big education piece going on as to saying, well, you know, that that's going to be here in 500 years unless you, you know, look after it properly. But if you're a company producing those bottles and flooding and marketing them in that in those countries, and you know that your bottle isn't going to biodegrade for 500 or 500 years or so, it's probably a bit of a responsibility on on you to take care of the environment as well. So I think there's a, there's kind of two sides of, of that coin. Um, 
and and so so yeah it's it's a complicated issue i don't want to blame it entirely on on big corporations because it's too easy but uh it certainly seemed to be to be a missing part of of the um the waste disposal question bob's question about the plastic bottle lakes of plastic bottles got me mm. thinking you know they're they're finding microplastics in babies born yeah they're they find microplastics in snowmelt from everest and i'm mm-hmm. just could you say a little bit about how this waste crisis particularly the plastic waste crisis is affecting the world's water supplies sure i mean well i mean as, as you said microplastics we are now understand microplastics and nanoplastics are ubiquitous they are in our rainwater they are in the clouds they are but there is basically no part of planet earth i did a story uh, for the economist a few years ago about this guy who is going down to the parts of the deepest world ocean, uh, the, the deepest parts of the world's oceans. And he found a plastic bag at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, you know, like that, that's, that's like the remotest place you can get. So um, it is it is ubiquitous now. Uh, it's ironic because because the word polymer, plastics are polymers. Po- polymer comes from the Greek many parts. And it's like, well, yeah, that's, the, that's what these things are. Like chemically, they're these tiny chains, repeating chains. And when you break them up, they they kind of stick together that's the whole point that's how they were marketed you know you look back there's this fantastic historian um of the plastics and chemical industry rebecca altman who's writing a book at the moment uh, and she's kind of finds these incredible art like adverts from the 1930s and 40s and then you know about you know dupont adverts boasting about the stuff that this will essentially never break down and never degrade never degrade um the challenge we have with microplastics and nanoplastics is that we still don't understand the ramifications we 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 are still at the very early stage of understanding okay what's the impact of on our health honestly it doesn't look good if you look at tests with lab animals uh they they don't have great results they don't have great results on things like fertility they don't have great results on things like uh, cancer and behavior uh, particularly in growth uh, if you look at you know i talk about plastics because they are multiple things one of the things that there's about 10,000 known additives in plastics uh, many of them for many years uh, are like now known or probable carcinogens there's a whole book in the and the, there's a whole chapter in the book about toxicity and toxic waste and how we kind of analyze chemicals but if you think if you back to the 1980s when kids were all drinking from baby bottles that had bpa in which we now you know know as an incredible uh, incredibly toxic chemical what the industry did the chemical industry they turned around and they swapped it for something called bps which also turns out no spoilers uh, is also not that good for you. So there, there's not like a lot of great solutions when it comes to swapping out like bad plastics for slightly less bad plastics. Um, my feeling is that we are only just starting to understand the ramifications, um, but things like the UN Plastics Convention, which is going on at the moment and, and is hearing now, will, will start to pass the first really meaningful global legislation on some of that stuff because we need to kind of start understanding what is in the like get, get a handle on how many plastics are out that are out there what's in them and then also just like understand that if we don't have a functioning waste industry then of course these these microplastics are going to get everywhere you know it's it's kind of wild to me and that's one of the reasons why waste is so fascinating to me because it is central now to our ecosystem waste is if you think about waste in nature it is like a fundamental part of the cycle it's the nutrients that you put into the ground it's wild talking to farmers about plastic because they're like okay well if you take food waste and chop it up there's so much plastic in there now that you're spreading microplastic on the fields and then it shows up in the vegetables 
And you're like, well, there's no wonder that it's in our bodies because we're chopping it up and we're spreading it on the fields, you know? So th this this is a huge and ever-present problem that we should all be kind of thinking about and reckoning with. And I hope that this can be part of that, I suppose. I think uh, one of the, the more alarming <clears throat> aspects of this, which is, you know, you, you kind of really explained, I think, in great detail was electronics, mm. um, you know, laptops and cell phones and TVs and things like that. Um, you know, you, you said that sometimes these things are like brand new in the box. They've never been sold, but because, you know, they, they want to kind of sell the new line, you know, they just they just tr trash these. And then there's all kinds of toxic materials, you have lead, zinc, and everything. Like, how big of a problem is electronics? And it seems like it's getting much, much bigger very rapidly. Well, yeah, the, the, the fastest growing form of waste in the world is electronic waste, which probably won't yeah. surprise anyone. You know, there's, there's so much stuff around now that has little batteries in. I was reading a thing uh, just this morning, actually, about vapes in the Financial Times. You know, vape, these these kind of single-use vapes, they've got lithium-ion batteries now, and they are the scourge of the recycling industry because you put them through a big crusher and they basically explode and catch fire and there are recycling facilities burning down yeah. off like yeah. tiny little vape batteries, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but yeah, electronics are a both a huge problem and a huge opportunity because there's so much value. There's, there are so many rare and incredibly valuable metals in, in so much thing you know there's th things in your mobile phone um cobalt and gold and tantalum and and these things that it's in, that are incredibly precious and, and rare on the face of the earth that mining companies now are doing this thing that they call it they call it urban mining or landfill mining where they're basically going through old landfills to try and pick out you know like historic electronics essentially to try and get them the metals in there the challenge as you said is that there's a lot of toxicity present in a lot of these materials. Now, if you go somewhere like in the US where you have these uh, advanced facilities, like the one, the ERI one that I present in the book, which is out in Fresno. And as you said, uh, quite often they are new TVs, but I'll save that for a different question, different answer. But you know, these are things basically being put in these gigantic blenders, like the noisiest room of all time, because you're you know putting metal through metal and it's, uh, grinding it back down to powders and then sending it back off to be smelted into new metals. Um, the challenge is in, is in places like Ghana, uh, which I visit in the book, uh, that's being done in much more rudimentary ways. And you have teenage boys, you know, with big nests of wire on the end of a stick, burning it on an open fire to get at the metals inside. Um, and you get incredible levels of groundwater and soil contamination with heavy metals and things. There is a, There was a great piece of work done by Greenpeace in the 1990s and the early 2000s about um, what was going on in China at the time. China, for, for a long time, was the was the world's kind of epicenter of, of electronics recycling, which, by the way, is, is where a lot of the Chinese specialism in electronics manufacturing came from, right? Because we were supplying them with all this stuff that they were fixing and repairing, and you got a generation of people who became very knowledgeable and good at, 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 at economics in the supply chain kind of all linked up there so it kind of all starts with trash but you had people there was like 80 percent of children had lead, lead poisoning in some of these villages you know and they had to pipe in um they had to send in bottled water because the water was too contaminated to drink so wherever you do the this kind of heavy metals processing the the it's an incredibly toxic process and if you don't do it safely the repercussions will quite often be be held for kind of decades to come Hey folks, you're listening to the Green and Red podcast, where we interview guests like Noam Chomsky and Andrew Basevich. We also have shows on cultural icons like Johnny Cash and Woody Guthrie and the Godfather movies. And we talk to scores of organizers and activists who tell us what is happening in the streets and 
in the back country. So check us out. Yeah, and I'm Bob Azenko. And as always, uh, Scott and I want to thank you for listening, for watching, for supporting us. Uh, and we hope we continue to do that. The first thing we ask is that you share this, let people know that we're out there and we're doing something that I think is different. We have a good niche, I think, in left podcast. And uh, we talk to really cool people and, uh, about really important issues. Um, follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, go to our webpage, which is on uh, in the screen. And, uh, um, you know, if you really like us and if you have a, a, a little uh, extra change around um, jingles or folds, uh, uh, you can help us out by going to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hitting that support button and make a one-time donation. Or you can check us out at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a patron. Uh, we'll see you again real soon. One one thing I'm curious about, I actually read a article this week, it was in Grist, actually about a study that came out in Nature Sustainability like about a week ago, saying that, the, that there's been this big, mostly industry-driven focus on recycling and, you know, the, what is it, like reduce, reuse, reuse and, and recycle, and that it's actually not lent uh, a lot of attention, resources, that sort of thing to the reduction. You know, corporations don't want to reduce consumption. Yeah. They they just want to recycle it. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious, you know, how is this focus, you know, of re- on recycling escalated, you know, the, the waste crisis, the global waste crisis? Yeah, it's something that I, I struggle with all the time, because, you know, when you go to these waste conferences, there are these big NGOs now, and they call they talk about the circular economy and this idea that you're just going to kind of be able to reuse things over and over again, like infinitely, and it's going to be the world is going to be great. And while that sounds lovely and is a good goal for us to be striving towards, like more more circularity, uh, more times through the loop. I don't like to use the word circularity, but yeah, more recycling it has its benefits. The reality is that you come up with against physics at a certain point. You know, plastics degrade as they're recycled, and so you can only recycle them a few times. And most of the time, they're downcycled. They become more brittle and they become a bit darker. Uh, so you you can like you know your bottle can't be turned infinite like a clear bottle can't be turned into infinite clear bottles it eventually comes down until it's like a drain pipe or something like inert um and the same is true as clothes you know or paper the fiber shortens paper recycling happens because essentially there's an infinite supply of new trees going in to kind of keep the stock uh like high quality which is something we don't talk about when you talk about the circular economy right we don't talk about the, the extent to which it relies on the on the constant supply of virgin materials so when you see companies talking about recycling, it's because it's like the least threatening to their ways of life, as, which is what you're kind of getting at. When you see clothes companies, like it always makes me laugh when I go to the supermarket and they quite often have these bins outside now, which are like, you know, detoxify your wardrobe, like recycle your clothing. And what they really mean is come and buy some new clothing, right? Like they're saying like dump it at the door so you can leave with new stuff. And so much of their vision of the the circular economy is just you buying stuff and using it faster you know going round and round the loop quicker and quicker and quicker these t-shirts that last you a few wears and then you're buying a new one because it props up the dividends and and the, the, the market so i'm very cynical of any solutions to the waste crisis that involve you buying new stuff like i'm not sure how much you buying a keep cup is going to like solve this this problem and uh 
I'll, I'll tell you now. I'll tell you here. I'm just going to spoil the spoiler. The big part, the big twist in the book, uh, which is about two thirds of the way through, and it's kind of intentional. It's a little bit like a crime novel. My my Agatha Christie of, of trash moment is that ninety like so by by one estimate, ninety seven percent of all waste by weight is industrial waste. So when we talk about recycling and individual actions and the things you do at the supermarket and what you do with your with your bottle lids, you know, we're talking about a literal drop in the ocean, right? Like the, the, the vast majority, you think about the waste that goes into a hamburger, you're not just talking about the rest of the cow, although that's probably being used for other stuff. You're talking about everything that the cows, you know, defecated and the ponds in the Midwest that are filled with all this animal defecation and all of the deforestation that's had to happen to grow that soy. And when you start to abstract out and say, imagine the amount of waste that's happened before the hamburger gets to you is kind of insane. So the the only real things that we can do are well, the first two things in that list, right? Reduce, reuse, recycle, which a lot of people don't know was devised in the order of preference. The, first, the best thing you can do is reduce, buy less stuff. Second thing you can do is reuse that stuff. And, and like last resort is recycle. <laughs> but we only talk about the third one, which is, is crazy to me. It was a good story, that great story. I, I read it at the time. I enjoyed it. <laughs> you mentioned um, at the beginning um, how much food is just thrown hmm. away. And, and so clearly, um, you know, I've heard those numbers before in industry, which is causing this, you know, mass malnutrition. But agriculture, um, mm. which is industrialized too, obviously, but agriculture must be a, a huge part of this. I remember maybe 15 years ago reading this horrific story, and I think it was Rolling Stone about a like these pig farms in North Carolina mm. that had these massive lakes of pig waste. Mm. And you know, when it rained or there was a storm, it would get you know uh, riled up and roiled in, into the groundwater. Mm. And how big of a problem is is that kind of agricultural waste? You know, I really wanted to to like I was, there was there was so much stuff on the on the kind of cuttings room floor with this book, and I really wanted to do stuff about those silage ponds because they are a huge environmental hazard and, and problem. You know, particularly on industrial farms. Yeah. That that those figure. You know what what the pig eats and then shits away. Sorry, I'm yeah. not allowed to swear or not. Uh, it's is a separate thing from the food that gets thrown away, right? So I, I do think yeah. that that's, yeah. that's a systemic problem with industrialized yeah. agriculture, and is for real. It's one of the reasons I try not to eat very much meat anymore. Um, but yeah, it's it's a huge problem. Methane, you know, we talk about methane as being it's it's several dozen times more potent as a as a heating agent than carbon dioxide is. Well, like what causes methane? Well, animals and animal waste. You know, that's it's a huge part of it as well as landfills and and many other things to do with the waste industry for that matter. Which is why the waste industry. I think food waste. I think the IPCC number it was ten percent. It's now eight percent. I think eight percent of all greenhouse gas emissions can be attributed to food waste. So, which is more uh, solid waste alone contributes more than the entire aviation and global shipping industries combined. So, like for me, waste is always like that. We talk about sustainability. Waste is a really low hanging fruit stuff because it's stuff we deal with every day. It's physical and tangible, right? So, with with food, the thing that kind of maddened me is that, in my experience, farmers know this stuff and they're really like aggrieved and they're angry about it because they deal with it every day particularly if you're talking like fruit and vegetable farmers right these 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 are people who spend their livelihood and they you know they're out in the fields all the time they see this stuff and so when they have to dig a crop of potatoes back into the soil because they've spoiled or because no one's buying them at market it's heartbreaking you know i've had farmers but on the verge of tears with me talking about it and one of the things that i became really frustrated with in the book is that supermarkets and the food industry has been very good at spinning this narrative of like oh well we're, we're super efficient now we've kind of got rid of all our waste we don't do anything 
because one thing they do is that they they pass the blame on to you at home by basically you know saying oh it's your fault that you bought a big bag of salad and it's all gone curly uh, or whatever or they blame you know other parts of the industry they they blame farmers farmers on the other what on the other hand are being are quite often being screwed over by these ridiculous contracts where some basically in the you know quite often in this in the in the food business a farmer a food business might say okay we want a thousand tons of potatoes and so the farmer goes okay well i'll plant a thousand tons oh, if I, I'll, I'll plant a little bit more than that because there might be some spoilage so maybe i'll plant 1100 tons or something and then the retailer you know it takes it some time for those things to grow right you know you're talking months months down the road and months down the road, suddenly the retailer will go, oh, sorry, the economy is a bit different. Oh, oh, sorry, we're not, you know, selling as many chips this summer. So I'm going to cancel that contract. And actually, we want 8,000 tons or whatever. You know, we want 800 tons instead of 1,000 tons. And suddenly the farmer, like with, with a week to go, like has suddenly has 200 tons of potatoes on his hands. He can't sell and like can't move to market and what happens then is that there's a glut of potatoes available on the market and the prices crash and so it becomes that if you have loads and loads of farmers who suddenly have too much vegetables because the market's gone down they can't move them and so it's not worth the labor costs for them to dig them up so you have fields and fields and fields there was some stories this summer in the uk of like apple orchards and like entire apple crops just going unpicked and you just think that's insane to me. Like that, that the inefficiencies in that industry and the farmers are on art. Like the farmers want to want to want to do better, but it's the way that it's it's the way that industrial agriculture and our kind of capitalist kind of system is set up these days. Um, so I hope that we can again. One of the things that we we could really do is is encourage better buying practices and more ethical behavior on behalf of the big corporations that are buying buying and selling our foodstuffs because they could make a huge difference. The, the climate impact of them cutting it down on uh, you know saving some of those wastes at farm level will offset more than they can do by replacing their straws for paper ones you know sorry that's a very long very long very long answer <laughs> are there any examples of like countries or companies that are kind of doing it doing it right or doing it better where they're you know yeah. kind of either regulating or they just you know kind of encouraging better consumptive habits things like that Oh yeah, there's a bunch, and and I think the thing that I've been really encouraged by, you know, I started this story, this book, four years ago now, and if you'd asked, if you'd have told me four years ago, like how quickly the awareness has changed on this issue, and that the fact that the UN would be sitting there, kind of debating a plastic convention, and the like, New York State would be passing a right to repair bill, it, I would have just like laughed at you, and most of the people in the industry would have laughed at you. So it's moved incredibly quickly. Um, I think I write about this in the book, but, but you know, the growth of things like rental businesses. So like my kids, I don't buy them bikes anymore. I rent the bikes and then you give them back and they give them to someone else. I rent a lot of their toys. Uh, I buy a lot less stuff. We buy a lot of stuff secondhand and you see these apps now, like a lot of the people are like, particularly with things like clothing. Um, so there's been a huge pro amount of progress on, on things like um, used and secondhand and, and right to repair countries that have done well. There's a few examples. I mean, South talk about food waste, South Korea has done some incredible things on food waste. It went from one of the most wasteful cultures and countries in the world like 10, 10, 15 years ago to now being one of the best. And a couple of things that it did that were really effective. The first one is that you basically, in that country, you pay based on how much you throw away. Like you you, you are charged on, on the amount of waste you produce, which is a very simple, crude lever, but it works really well. And the second thing is that they have like municipal compost collections everywhere 
including in the street. Like you can be walking, you know, if you have a, something outside of McDonald's, you can go to a compost bin and throw the food away. And uh, you get these kind of lovely circular effects then where they they get a free nice supply of compost which they can give to farmers at uh, or, you know or, almost nothing. But it also kind of has these nice knock-on effects of people are starting to think a lot more about the the waste impacts of their food in public places because that's where a lot of food food waste is is lost. For, um, for example, so there's there's been some really encouraging um, examples, and I hope that those are now like continue to to propagate and continue to spread the thing that i'm a little bit scary now like think that i'm scared of now is like there's not quite a few countries in the world now are having a tough time economically um in the uk and in europe particularly with the war in ukraine and stuff that the the economy hasn't been looking good and historically when you look back that's when you lose a lot of the progress you've made right so i, I hope that we can kind of continue to push through that and the industry doesn't use it as an excuse to to push back and resist the changes that are being made. Yeah. In um, 2017, when Harvey hit Houston, um, recycling was stopped for about a year. I think the city mm. pro- probably, had, if it has way, would not have continued it. But there was, you know, a lot of outcry. But for at least a year, you know, there, there was no recycling after that storm. Mm. So, you know. It's, it's some of the, some of the ways and some of the stories I hear about waste in the U.S., are wild to me and like you know the lack of recycling it's 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 expensive um and and the, the corporatization of the waste industry doesn't help because often these are kind of huge conglomerates have have essentially total control of the market um, not that it was much better back in the 50s when the mafia used to run it all which is like another fun kind of sub <laughs> subplot in the book waste, like the waste management I, I know a lot of waste management consultants so yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah the, the, anyone who has watched the sopranos know what yeah. that means <laughs> and uh and yeah and you you see things like you know new york has had a compost uh, like a citywide composting scheme that's kind of been turning on and off every couple of years for about 30 years and they just can't commit either way and you know they, they get a new mayor in or a new whatever the city budgets change and something that's been encouraging to me is like so for example in the uk uh, a couple of years ago the government passed a, a new environment bill and they standardized waste collections across the entire country previously it was um you know federated to local councils as it were um and it seems it's like a no-brainer for the recycling industry because then the recycling industry can like it really basic things like it knows how much there is out there you know how it knows how much trash it's getting so it can build the facilities required for it right because you're not constantly having to bid for contracts and do all that kind of stuff if you know okay we're going to produce this amount of waste and it's going to be made of this stuff you it's much easier to kind of get a hold on this and this stuff and when it's kind of little and scrappy and and, and done in these piecemeal um ways it makes it very difficult to make any money and to make a living um which is which is tough yeah so i hope that I hope the cities see the value in, in recycling and, and and it will come to. And I hope that that starts that starts at home, I guess. Uh, I think we're getting near the end of our time. I have one last question. I don't sure. know if Bob, Bob does. Yeah, I have one. So. <laughs> My, I'll go and then you can go, Bob. Um, I, you know, I've been working in environmental climate groups and movements for like over 20 years. Mm. And, you know, it's been a lot of hard fought progress, particularly on climate, particularly on fighting fossil fuels. It, it seems like at least in the U.S. and, and globally that the sort of break free, for, I, I believe the actual official name of the coalition is break free from plastic. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's like a lot of like really rapid, you know, there's been a lot of rapid movement on a single, you know, single use plastic has been sort of a, a kind of a cultural, become a cultural term. Yeah. We're seeing industry actually try to pass 
laws in certain states so that you can't ban single-use plastic in their cities and i'm and i'm just you know there seems to be some you know optimism around this work and i think that's i think that's important but i'm i'm wondering you know if how how you're seeing that and how like these like you know these movements are 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 they being effective in sort of like styming what the industry is doing uh especially around plastic and plastic packaging and and things along those lines and I know, I know that I've also seen numbers where the industry, where the oil industry has, and the and the and the pet chem, petrochemical industry has like huge numbers to grow, you know, two or three hundred percent, you know, in the next couple of years on plastic oh, yeah. production. Yeah, I mean, for the the, con- the context of all of this is the oil and and gas industry knows and can kind of foresee certain markets kind of um, declining in their in their need for for oil and natural gas whereas plastics is something that they can kind of it's their hedge yeah exactly you know it's it's the thing that they're kind of betting their futures on in in a lot of cases so that you should not underestimate the level of pushback that there is and this has been true in the waste industry as like since you know keep america beautiful and the anti-bottle bans and stuff going back to the 50s and, and probably before that so there's always this push and pull this fight and fight back between environmentalist movements and and industry trying to trying to make a buck um my the thing that i feel optimistic the thing i worry about and i'm hyper vigilant of is the way that movements and goodwill are co-opted by uh by business i'll use a i'll use an example um I don't know how much this is true in the US. Uh, you know, I, I, I was going to use the one of compostable plastics, which turned out not to be compostable, but you can read about that in the book if you like. I'll use a, uh, I'll use a recent one, uh, which is uh, ocean plastics. The last few years, you've started to see all these products marketed as being made with ocean plastic. They use this term. And now you talk to most people and they think, oh, well, that's plastic that's been fished out of the ocean and like remade into things. That is, in, in the majority of cases, not true. What they, the actual industry definition of this stuff is that it's plastic harvested within 50 kilometers of a major river or sea in a global in the global south, essentially. And when you kind of tot up the numbers, about three quarters of the entire population of the world live within that definition. So it's like the most meaningless umbrella term. And the the the, the translation is we paid some of the poorest people in the world to pick some 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 garbage up off the beach. And then we're selling it at a markup to you. Now, I don't doubt that there is value in cleaning up beaches in the Philippines or Malaysia. But let me tell you, because I've met some of these waste pickers, they are not seeing the financial upside. When you go and buy a soccer shirt that's made from ocean plastic or buy a pair of sunglasses, these people are not getting paid. They are not seeing the upside. Their local communities, their municipalities are not getting money to fund their their waste collection and actually deal with the problem systemically which means that it's a very kind of opportunistic and often short-lived solution right like this is that this is a this is a marketing ploy and there this pattern kind of repeats itself over and over again you look at the history of recycling of waste they we tend towards easy problem easy solutions to problems rather than change our behaviors we change, you know, they get rid of plastic bags, fine. So you buy two dozen tote bags and then, and then you look at the life cycle analysis of a tote bag and you realize, well, actually, in order for that to be better than you reusing the plastic bag in the first place, you've got to use it several thousand times. 
right? Because because we don't consider, you know, you, you consider this thing, oh, it must be sustainable. And it's like, well, actually, maybe we don't need two dozen tote bags. And by the way, our publishing industry is probably like among the worst, worst for that. So a lot of the times, any solution to me that involves like buying new stuff can't really be taking the problem seriously when you take into account the, the the big problem is the industrial side. You know, the big waste problem is the industrial side, right? So for me, I, I'm interested in solutions that involve what we were talking about, you know, reduce and reuse. And I talk to people about, you, know, you guys are environmentalists, so this this isn't a perfect analogy, but when I say to people, buy less stuff, and they say, well, you know, it's, it's a complicated thing, and I'm not sure how well that goes, goes across. Well, I say, well, buy less, buy better stuff. Buy things. You know, I'm not saying you should go out with any clothes on. I'm saying that you should, when you do need to buy things, Buy things that are higher quality, that are where the manufacturer is paid a, a fairer wage, and that you can repair and look after, and you're going to love for decades to come. You know, this disposable lifestyle, fast fashion, fast okay. everything, disposable stuff, is not sustainable. Whereas, you, what you need to be doing is buying things and thinking about the longevity. You know, buy stuff that you can pass on to your kids or pass on to someone in the global south who can then use it for 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 years to come and the side effect of that is that you it's great because you actually end up with things that you love and that you have a relationship with if you you know through the story of this book i've been learning to repair things like darning socks and stuff I feel like a 1920s housewife but you know like learning to fix electronics once you know, like understand how electronics work and you can recycle them, it's great. You know, like yeah. you, you start to really value things you talk to people who are into cars and they understand engines and you know they, they have a much more meaningful, almost soulful relationship with with those things. And as a result, they're going to take better care of it. And so if we can kind of encourage that kind of stewardship approach to owning things over disposability, then that's one way to move closer to like a real systemic like mindset change. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how amenable that is to people. Well, that, uh, <laughs> that actually leads to my last question, which is, I don't know if you followed it closely, but there's like a pretty big debate, especially on the left about the, uh, like degrowth capitalism. Mm. And so you have here in the US, at least a lot of people who call themselves socialist and radicals, but they're mm -hmm. kind of really hardcore defenders of, you know, the the atomic uh, industry or air conditioning or private planes or just kind of electronics, you know, that basically they're saying, you know, just because we're socialist doesn't mean we can't have all this stuff. And this has become like kind of a really, really pretty intense debate. And I just wondered if you're aware of that, and what you think about it, the whole um, idea of degrowth. You know, like the, using the, you know. The honest answer is that like talking about degrowth and those kind of stuff always makes me slightly uncomfortable in the same way that when people go, well, the, the answer is we need to have less children. And I'm like, okay, we'll try legislating <laughs> yeah. to make people have less kids because the, the, the historically that's not gone well. So um I'm not an economist. I I'm and I don't feel like me spewing my half-formed thoughts into the world is going to do anyone any good. There's some really good books out there, and you can go and read books by people like Jen Bendel, and and uh, who uh, is, has written uh, very well on this. Um, but I would say that you know we need those activists to move the conversation, to move the window, and whatever the solution is, it needs to take into account. You know, we talked about colonialism at the start of this at the start of this conversation. You know, there are people in this book. I was in I was in Accra, which is the capital of Ghana in West Africa, and in a in a informal settlement there, um, on the edge of the city, meeting these waste pickers, and they live eight to a room. You know, these are some of the poorest people you'll ever meet. And if you start talking to them about degrowth, 
they're going to say, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, like the, the, if we any solution needs to acknowledge the fact that there are billions of people in the world with not enough food to eat before we start talking about, you know, whether they should have private planes and things like that. So I, I think whatever the solution needs to be, it just needs to like respect that it needs to work in all economies and, and in the global South. And this is why, to me, I'm much more interested in things like legislating for ethical buying practices so that people aren't getting abused in sweatshops. You know, like if you buy stuff that's higher quality, the chances are they're getting paid a higher wage and 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 you kind of get these ancillary benefits that kind of cascade on down. So just like <laughs> be be thoughtful is, 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 I guess, the one thing that I would say to people. But I'd be interested in, in both of your thoughts and I'm, and I'm sure that you'll, you, you have and will discuss this in future episodes because it is something that, I read about and I'm in, like keen to engage with, but I I don't think your listeners will benefit from my thoughts on a, about it on this occasion. We've Maybe been that's about, the next book. <laughs> we've been trying. Yeah, that'd be that's a great topic for another book. Yeah. We we have actually been talking about an episode on degrowth soon. Again. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we um, can both do it. There you go. Yeah, there's there's so there much go. in this. I mean, we could talk to you for a long time more because you know there's just so much stuff we didn't even get to, but it's it's really great and. You know, I think uh, especially, you know, with global warming becoming worse and we're seeing that every day with fires and yeah. weather events. So the connection to, uh, to to actual waste is obviously what we do. You know, disposing mm-hmm. of things is a big part of that. So yep. yeah, really, really yeah. useful, really great. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. I appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, I hope, I hope your listeners like the book. And uh, yeah, lots, Folks, lots more to get into next time. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> You've been listening to Oliver Franklin Wallace talking trash about his new book, Wasteland, The Dirty Truth About What We Throw Away. Uh, and if you like uh, if you like what you hear and check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, if you're watching this on YouTube, give us a subscribe. Same thing if you're listening to us on the audio podcast. If you really like us, go to greenredpodcast.org and hit the support button or become a patron at patreon.com backslash Green Red Podcast. And we'll talk to you all again soon. In the meantime, go misbehave and reduce your consumption, not just recycle. Bye.